If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew 25, we're going to look at this parable of the talents. And I always love it when Stephanie does this, uh, the child's message, because I just go, okay, I think we can go home now. She just nailed it. I mean, just like, that's the story. And so we're going to take this, this story, and maybe it's familiar to you, and I hope it is. And if it isn't, uh, I hope you'll just, you'll catch uh, the beautiful picture of what God has done for us. I heard a line recently from Andrew Peterson, a storyteller and artist and musician. And he, he said, if you want somebody to know something, tell them. But if you want somebody to love something, tell them a story. And so Jesus, when he was telling these stories, as you've seen the, the title of the series, he, he wants to do a couple of things. And Ben, when he opened this series, reminded us that the parables have a twofold aspect to them. There's a concealing that goes on and there's a revealing that goes on. But the beauty as we see what the story is about and as our eyes are open to, to see the kingdom of God, that, that more than just do we see, but we, are come, we come to love what we see. We come to love the, the kingdom of God and we come to love the king and our, our lives are transformed in that reality. And so Jesus tells these stories to help us to see and understand what the kingdom of God is like. How is it that God sees? And I love this thought that Jesus, the creator of everything, right, has built into his world, his, the structure of creation, the raw material that he's going to use to tell us about the kingdom. And so that, that's what the parables are. And this parable of the talents tells us about what God has entrusted to us. What's it look like when God shows up in this world? The, the, let me give you a little context, and then we'll read our passage this morning. It's important to know that this is obviously near the end of Jesus' teaching ministries, preparing to go to the cross. And in this section in Matthew, there, there's a, the emphasis is on his, his, his own disciples ask the question, well, when's this going to happen? When is the end going to come? And Jesus is explaining to them about the end, which means, when's God going to show up? When's the kingdom going to come? And Jesus wants to explain to them, he's telling them in two parables, a parable of the, the widow, of the, of the ten virgins, and then this one, He's answering this question. It's a, it's a question that hangs in the air. How do we live in this interim period of time between when the king has gone away, when the master has left, and when he's going to return? We're in the already in the not yet, the already of what Christ has accomplished, and we're waiting for it to be consummated and finished. How do we live now? And the two parables that he tells back to back give us a kind of understanding of how do we live now? What's, what's our lives look like as we live in this interim period of time? The first parable he tells is the ten virgins, and we see that five of them are wise and five are unwise, and it has everything to do about being ready for the return of the bridegroom, and readiness is the theme, and Jesus says, how do you live in the interim period of time? Be ready for the return of the king. Be vigilant. Do everything in your power to know he will return and live in such a way to be prepared for that return. But then in the second parable, we have the parable of the talents. It has something to do with what's been entrusted to us. And what do we do with what's been given to us in this period of time? Because as Stephanie said so well, we've been entrusted with something of great wealth. 
of great power to do work. And so the question is, how do we live in this interim period of time? It has something to do with what do we do with what's been given to us? Ready and prepared for him to return. And we show that and we demonstrate that by doing something with what's been given to us. Let's read our passage this morning. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents and to another two, to another one, to each according his, his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, he who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you had scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I had not sown and gather where I had scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to one who has, to to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from what, (laughs) but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in the place where there will, weep, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word this morning, for the truth that you've given us something. And I pray we would have ears to hear what you have to say and eyes to see what you've entrusted to us and power to put it to work so that we could see your kingdom manifested and grow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The, this, the, this parable opens with it will be like and it reminds us again it, it, it harkens back to the very first verse in the, in the chapter it is the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven it will be like that's what Jesus is instructing to us and he's telling us and if we, could, if we could do everything you could see that the, this, this parable is about and I'm turning it on you see my, my title is it's about delighting in the master and everything turns on a couple of phrases that are right in the middle of the text. Enter into the joy of your master. And we see this story that the master entrusts to them a certain amount of money. And his intention is to do this. It's to, for them to put it to work and to expand on it, to grow it. That he, that he invites them into a kind of partnership. 
He wants them in giving them and trusting to them the talents. If you have the NIV, it's bags of gold. It's literally resources to do work. Talents, to, to do something. He wants to entrust to them. He says, I want you to join me in my kingdom in this work. I want you to be a part of that. And even as the two go to invest it, of course, there's a kind of risk, right? But there's also gain. That's a part of this venture that they step into. And each are given a certain amount according to the ability that they have. And we see that the first one, right, five talents, we're told at once. He goes and he invests it. He, he begins to trade and, and do work and expand it. And the second one does exactly the same. And the third one, we see there's a big but, right? What does he do with it? He does something completely different. And we're told that he buries it in the ground. You know what happens? After a long time, and I love that Stephanie emphasized that, a long time passes, and what happens? The master comes back. And what does he do? He's calling them to give an account for what he's given to them. He says, this is mine, but I'm entrusting it to you to do something with. You are partners with me. And so he returns and he calls them to account. And we see that two of them, right, who have done good work, who have understood their partnership with him rightly and have acted in such a way to demonstrate that they understand what he had called them to do, that he rewards them, that there's honor. But then the third one we find, because he didn't know his master. And in one respect, he didn't really care about his master's interests. He didn't really care. And so what does he do with what's been given to him? He demonstrates what he knows or what he believes to be true about the master. And his interest in the master, his master's uh, ventures, he's, I don't care. And there's a judgment that's a part of that. And it, it ends, right, kind of dark. The, the, the parable ends in this kind of darkness and you're like gnashing of teeth and, and, and this judgment against this individual and it should kind of unnerve us. But what I want to do this morning is I look, so we look at this, I want to look at the talents that's entrusted and ask the question, what's that mean for us? What, what does it mean that a talent has been entrusted to us? And I want to look at the surprising nature of some of those talents. And then I want to look at the danger of comparison of my talent to yours. And then I want to look at the faithfulness and reward and the judgment and punishment. And so that's where we're going to go this morning as we look at this passage. It's interesting, this, this word talent in the Greek, it just sounds like, just like sounds like talent, doesn't help us a whole lot exactly what it is, except that it's resources. And if you were here last week, Ben introduced us to the table of weights and measures, you can just look at your footnote here and you can see that a talent is 20 years wages of a common laborer. Well, I looked on uh, Google, the Google and found that uh, the average median income of a household was about $70,000. And so you can do the math that one talent is worth in our day and age, perhaps a million or a million and a half dollars. We are not talking about a small amount of money a small amount of resources that were entrusted that were given to these servants. So there's a lot. There's a, a, 20 years of wages are entrusted to them, each according to the ability, ability one five, one two, and the, and the third one is given one talent. And then each one responds with that. The first two are thrilled, right? They see, they go, what an incredible gift. What an incredible opportunity. I get to work with the master. They understand. They're excited about what he's about. And then they get to work. 
five, he turns it into five more. The one with two turns it into two more. And, and the third one, right? He has one. And what does he do? He does absolutely nothing with it. We're told that he buries it in the ground. He asks the question, why did he do that? I don't know. Does he want to avoid, avoid risk? So I'm just going to put it there. Is he upset that he's only given one and not five or not two? Is he just lazy? We're told that he is. He's slothful. The fact is, we, we just don't know exactly why he did that. But what he did with his talent tells us everything we need to know about how he saw the venture that he was invited into, and more importantly, how he saw the master. That his relationship to his master dictated what he would do with what he had and how he responded. And so we look at that and we ask the question, how do we understand? What's it represent? What does it do in our lives? And we're told that, that, that what's been given to us, what's entrusted to us, is for the purpose of growing it and improving it, the, the kingdom of God. That what God gives to us, what you and I have, what's been entrusted to us, it's not exactly ours. That, that we're stewards of that. And insofar as we understand the master's intentions, we will operate that. We will do with what we've been given. It, it will cause us to respond in a certain kind of way. Now, the, the me, exact meaning of this word, talent, is really left purposely ambiguous. And I love that idea because as we look at our own lives and we ask the question, what do we have? I think here's the fact. In God's hands, in our lives, virtually anything can be used to do work in his kingdom. There is nothing that he can't use that's in our lives, that's in our grasp, that comprises our lives that he can't use to build his kingdom, to do kingdom work. The resources at God's hands can be virtually anything. And we don't want to miss that fact that what's been given to us in his hands. But the yes question, what are those? I think we can make a whole list of them, but I think there's two categories. First is the obvious ones that we have. Obvious talents that we've been given. And the first one I want to just mention is that we've been given the gospel, right? The truth of who Christ is and what he's done for us. What he's done on our behalf that we could never do. We're called into a relationship with God that will never end. We're called into a place that we couldn't earn. And we're called into this incredible place that has this, holds this promise out. Not just that he walks with us, us today through the valley of the shadow of death, but there are, there's a future for us. That one day, he's going to restore all things. All the broken parts of our lives. All the hardship. All the cold wind that hits us in the face. He is going to change and transform. That's the gospel. We have that. It has transformed our lives. It is transforming our lives. It will transform our lives. That is a talent. It is resources to do work in us, among us, through us, and in the world around us. But we've been given the scriptures as well, right? This is incredible book that we read, right? It's not just ancient text. It's God's inspired truth that we read it and it tells us about us and it tells us about God and it calls us to live in a certain kind of way and it empowers us to do that. 
We've been given gifts and talents and spiritual gifts and resources and relationships. That Those are obvious things that we have. If you have financial resources, if you have ability to, to sing, right? I don't. That's why I don't sing. If you have abilities, God has given them to you and he wants to use those. Those are not for you to keep. They're, they're resources to build the kingdom of God. There's... Obvious ones, but then there's other ones that maybe aren't so obvious. We look at those things and go, yeah, those are, those are true. And we love to say, yeah, that, that, those are things we can do. But, but what about the parts of our lives or a story that we wish weren't there, right? That each one of us has been given a story. We call it a testimony. And our testimony is nothing short of everything that's happened in our lives and the particular ways that God has intersected us, remind us of who he is and who we are and what he's done on our behalf. And so our stories in God's hands is resource to build his kingdom. Now, some of us look at our story and we go, it's boring, right? There is nothing there, right? Right? I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a chronic jaywalker, right? Okay. Uh, you know, a, a parking meter violator. There, there's a lot of things I could say. I, you know, I swore at my sister when I was 12. Uh, we look at our stories and you go, what's there? And yet you go, in God's hands, that is a tool to be used. But then there's another group of us who look at our lives and we go, there is no way God could use my story. The darkness sin and the brokenness that, 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 that seems to characterize my life at times. There's no way that God could use me after what I have done. I am damaged goods. There's nothing good in this story that could really be used for kingdom resources. And yet in God's hands, guess what? It is an incredible resource to build the kingdom, to demonstrate the incredible grace of the king. So our stories are powerful. In the hands of God, in the hands of our master, they are a talent that's been entrusted to us. So the call, tell your story. Don't bury it in the ground, but tell your story. But there's another aspect of our, our story, and, and this is one that, that's kind of caught me over the, over the years, especially as, as I've got older. And when I was younger, I would identify resources in the positive sense, right? All the things I can do, and what can I do? And you try to find my gifts, and you know, identifying those are important things to do. But there's another side of our lives I think God can use, and that is undesirable circumstances that we find ourselves in are tools that can be used in God's sovereign hand undesirable circumstances are things that we wish we didn't have, right? Realities of our life that I wish weren't true about me or my circumstance. I wish were different. And yet in God's hands, he says, I will use those. I will use what you are and what you're not. I will use what you have and what you don't have. And all that makes up a tool in the hands of God to bring about, to show his grace to the world around us. That's what's wrong. If you've heard of this category, we call it the health and wealth gospel, which really isn't the gospel at all. It says that it's only seen in full bank accounts and healthy bodies. And you go, no, 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 no. Don't you realize that God uses empty bank accounts? He uses broken bodies to do his work. 
in ways that we can't even imagine. So our undesirable circumstances, the ones as we bring them to God to become talents and resources in his kingdom, the ones that we don't want, that we find ourselves, he says, I will use that. I love that line that God wastes nothing in our lives. Do you have particular struggles in your life? By God's grace, he can use that in the lives of others. What do you see in yourself that you, were, you wish wasn't the case? You go, by God's grace, he can use that. A number of years ago, John Piper wrote an article. It's called Don't Waste Your Cancer. When he was walking through cancer and he's got all these kind of tenets of you waste your cancer if and you waste your cancer if you do this and that. I'm going to read just a couple of them because you can take out the word cancer and place anything that's undesirable in your life in these statements. He says, you will waste your cancer or whatever if you do not believe it's designed for you by God. You will waste your cancer if you believe it's a curse and not a gift. You will waste your cancer if you spend too much time reading about cancer, not enough time reading about God. You will waste your cancer if you let it drive you into solitude instead of deepen your relationship and your affections. And we waste our undesirable circumstances if we think that God can't use them. And how do we live in this interim period of time between the master's left and he's returning? We remember that everything he's placed within our lives can be used by him and he will waste nothing in our lives. And that's the talent that God has entrusted to us. But then there's a danger, right? The five-talent guy can look to the two and look to the one. Or the, you can look, you know, the five-talent guy can go, look at me, look at what I've got. The two can look at the five and go, well, I don't have that. And, and you can see the danger in the way we compare our talents. But you see, here's the fact. It doesn't matter how many talents you've been entrusted with. What counts most is what do you do with what's been given to you? What do you do with what's been placed in your hands and we find ourselves on a, in a precarious place? If all we're doing is comparing what I have to what you have. What do I have? Is it enough? Is it more? Is it, you know, whatever? It doesn't matter. What's God given to you? Put it to work. It's a great gift because one thing is true about this parable. It's true also in our lives that no one no one has been given a small amount of resources. What you have been entrusted, whether it's one, two, or five, it is an enormous amount of resources that God can and will use. And I believe it deeply that it is one of Satan's tools to cause us, right, to compare our talents to one another. They didn't originate from us, right? It didn't come from me, it was a gift. And yet what he wants to do that Satan will cause us to bury our talent and not use it properly as we think that somehow I've been given enough. But what I have is sufficient and it is a gift and it is enormous amount to be used in the kingdom. So there's a danger that's there. See what the talent is. How do we live now? We go being given something. It's really a lot. Don't spend your time comparing. But then there's this picture how we live now. It's, we need to look forward, right? There's this 
eschatological kind of view, looking down the road, there will be a day when the master returns. And this picture, this, this parable tells us about that. And we want to wait for that. And you can almost see the, the five-talent guy and the two-talent guy. It was a long time, but they believed that he was going to return. And there's an eagerness with which they sought his return. And they couldn't wait to come and to show up and, and to show him, look, what, 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 look what's happened. Look what I've done with what you've given to me. And you see that the, their faithfulness, right, to, to put it to work, to, to understand he's going to return. I don't have to wonder he's going to, but I don't know when. An eagerness to look towards that. And we're called to say, oh, even Paul calls us to do that, to, to, to look forward to his return of our master. And you see, what, what does the master say to them? And I love this. It's exactly the same for both men. The first two servants, whether you have five and you turn into five, two turn into two, it's the same. He honors them, he rewards them, and then he invites them into a greater, deeper delight and joy in the relationship with his master. And you see, he honors them, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. He honors them. You've been good. Are any of us good? (laughs) only by God's grace, but he says, you've been good and you've been faithful with what I've given to you. He honors them. And then he rewards them. You've been faithful a little, I will give you much. I will set you over much. There's, There's more that's going to be given to us. And even in this life, we realize that there is kind of an increasing sense in which he entrusts to us more resources. But then... And I don't even know how to answer this question, but even in the next life, in in eternity, in the new heavens and new earth, more will be entrusted, more responsibilities. And you ask the question, what are those going to look like? I have no idea. Ben and I were talking about this last week. I don't know, but there's going to be more responsibilities. It's there. But the faithfulness is rewarded, right, with more responsibilities. But then there's an invitation, there's an invitation that's given into the greater taste of the joy. And in this passage, I love this phrase, enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, and this is, the, if, you, if you don't take anything else away, I hope you hear these words. The servant loved their work because they loved their master. They loved their work because they loved their master. It wasn't about just getting rich. It wasn't about gaining more It was they loved their work and the reward and the gain because they loved the master and they wanted to expand his influence and expand his kingdom, if you will. They loved to see it grow because they wanted to bring a smile to his face. Isn't that true of those we love? We want to please them. We want to please the people we love. And that was true of them. And I don't know about you guys, but this thought should just kind of strike us that we as finite fallen human beings have the incredible opportunity to bring a smile to the face of the infinite trying God. To to please him. And you go, what does that mean? He knew we're going to do it. Yes, he's given us the resources. Enter into the joy of your master means that we enter into his joy. And guess what happens? In some mysterious, beautiful way, we actually increase his joy. 
in and through what we do with what he's given to us. So that's the, the picture that we have. But then there's another, there's a dark side of this. We see that as we live in the now, we want to anticipate those words, that reward, but more than anything else, the joy that he invites us into. But then, as in some parables are one to do, it ends in this place. So we wish we could stop right there, right? That, okay, it's done. But Jesus goes on to say, there, there, there's a dark side. And it is, there is a picture of faithlessness. And there's a picture of judgment upon the third one. And, and you see that his response to the master is completely different. It's 180 degrees from the response of the first two servants. As, as he returns, what does he come with? He comes with words of excuse and blaming the master for what he didn't do with what had been trusted to him. He's blaming him. And you see the language, right? You are a hard man. You reap where you haven't sown, right? Where you've scattered no seed, you take. It's all your fault. And so I buried it. And you see, he could care less about the master's interests. And we don't know exactly what's there, but there's a, there's a hardness towards him. He doesn't understand him. All he sees is demanding and exacting person who is trying to exploit him for his own purposes. And he doesn't realize, right? I'm actually invited into partnership. It's not just about him. It's like I get to be a partner with what he's doing. But what he did with his resources demonstrated and revealed how he saw the master, a hard man, a demanding man. I don't want anything to do with him or his kingdom. So what am I going to do? I'm going to bury what is given to me. He buries it in the ground. I love the question that was asked. Then as the judgment comes, right? And he takes from him and he gives it to the others. And the little girl, I don't know who it was. She asked, why? Why did he do that? Why did he take the one from him? And you realize that he took it from him. Maybe some other answers to this question because what he did with it showed he didn't really didn't want it in the first place, right? And so the master says, you don't want this. You don't care about my interests. I'm going to give it to somebody who wants it. I'm going to give it to somebody who understands what I'm about. And then there's a kind of judgment that we have these words at the end of it, right? He casts them out. And that should be kind of haunting for us to go, really? You're going to treat that guy so severely, it's kind of like, well, what's the big deal, right? There's not, it's not like it's that, that big of a, a deal. It's not like he did, committed some sort of crime. He just kind of buried the, the, the treasure in the ground, right? What's the big deal? And you realize, no, this is a big deal. It wasn't just a sin of commission, right? It was a sin of omission. But what he didn't do with what had been given to him tells us everything about what he most loved, right? Who did he love? Who is he faithful to? Himself, alone. He didn't care about the master. And so what he did revealed that he didn't care. That he was committed to himself. And he does even something worse. He actually blames the master on what he did or didn't do. He says, it's your fault. And to blame God for what we don't do is of the most egregious of sins. 
And so as we look at this and we ask the question, how do we live in this interim period of time? We realize what we do with what we don't do with what's been given to us. How we see it tells us everything about how we understand the God who has entrusted to us and given us even the breath that we have right now in our lungs. So Jesus says, I want you to see this is how you live. You've been given a great deal. And it's in partnership and an intention. I want you to be a part of what I'm doing here. Don't compare. Don't do that. It's not helpful. Whether it's five, two, and one, it all comes from me and it's all a lot. There is reward to your faithfulness. And there's judgment to those who don't care about my interests. But I'm going to conclude with three quick application points. Because when I look at my own life, I think about this and I go, what, what, you know, where do I break down in my application of this? And I break down in a thousand different ways. I, I, was, I was looking at this yesterday and prep. My wife comes in and I went, I just shake my head. and I go, oh, I got to apply this stuff in my own life. I'm not sure if I can preach it tomorrow or not. It's go, there's just, there's so much to go. I, I just fail lots of ways, but that's not the point. Hear me on this, our application. First of all, as we think about living in this inner period of time with what God has entrusted to us, there's a challenge of meaning. There's a challenge of meaning. And as I look at my own life, what I mean by that is I oftentimes seek to derive my meaning from the talents and not the master. I seek to derive my identity and my meaning from the talents that I have, the resources that I have, and not the master. And when I try to find meaning and purpose and significance and identity in the talents and what I have, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to be thirsty as a man drinking from a cistern that is broken. Because my talents have meaning only insofar as they're connected to the purpose that the master has. So the challenge of meaning invites us to look to the master for our meaning and not the talents. And ask the question, what do you want me to do with what you've given me? And what I don't have. So the challenge of meaning. Because remember, you are not the source of all that you call yours. You didn't give it to yourself. It's from God himself. Secondly, there's a challenge of seeing We need to ask guys, uh, God to see, to enable to, to see and to account the, the beauty of this parable is it gives us this discrete amounts, right? Five turns into five. Two turns into two and at four. Five turns into ten. Two to four. I can do my math there. Uh, you know, and it's very discrete amounts. You go, okay, that's great. But oftentimes when we try to assess spiritual capital that's given to us and spiritual gain in our lives, right? What's God given to me, what I've done with it, guess what happens? It's not so easy to account it's actually quite difficult to go, what did I have and what, I, what have I done with it when I was a younger man? I think I could have said, look at what I've done with what he's given to me. And now as an older man, I go, I'm not so sure that I've done much of anything. I'm not sure that I have more than, than he's given me or if I have less. And so my eyes begin to squint to go, is there more? And I struggle in my own life to go, is it, is, it, is it grown? I can't tell sometimes. And here's the beauty in seeing. We don't have to be the ones that count. In fact, we can't count. Only he can do the accounting of what he's given and what we have. 
We have to kind of lay it before him. And so, Lord, here it is. Would you count and see if there's anything more than what was there? I'm going to trust by your grace and by your power that somehow something more will come out of what you've given to me such that I can bring back to you. And I can't even see it, but there's a challenge in seeing. We say, Lord, help me to see what you've done. Give me eyes to see. And, and, And so that you would indeed see and help me to see that. J.C. Ryle writes this in his commentary on this passage. I love these words. He says, The best of Christians is a poor, frail creature and needs the blood of atonement every day that he lives. But the least and the lowest of believers will find that he has counted everything of Christ's servants and that his labor has not been in vain in the Lord. And this is the the statement that, that caught me. He will discover to his amazement, right, in trying to account that his master's eyes saw more beauty in his efforts to please him than he ever saw himself. That God looks into our lives and he sees more than we could ever see. And that should bring us this kind of rest and comfort that I don't have to go, do I have more or less? He sees it. It's a challenge in meaning. It's a challenge in seeing. And then finally, there's a challenge in delight. If indeed what we've said this morning, that, 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 that to delight in the master is delight to use your talents, that I, I need this, as I delight and I, I see him and I love him, that I'm going to want to do this. But when I look at my own life, I oftentimes find more fixation on the talents. And I delight in them than I do in him. I go, what do I do when I find a deficiency of delight? Because I know when there's a deficiency of delight, I know I will do what the third guy did. The way I see him will cause me to want to bury my treasure. Bury the talent that he's given to me. But how do you cause delight in the master? And there's something that we need to know that delight can't be demanded. It must be cultivated. But you see, it's cultivated indeed as we come to really see the beauty of who God is. As we see him, as we see what he's done for us, what he's entrusted to us, what his intentions are, that he will indeed, that we will see that and it will grow in us to delight in him. And there's a number of different things we can do. I don't have time to kind of expand on it, but to see him is to delight in him. And I think there's something else, and I'll conclude with this, this, this notion. As we e- we're eager to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. As we're eager to step into the, the joy of our master and realize it's really about him. But I think there's something else, and C.S. Lewis helps us with this. He's helped me a great deal with this idea when you find the absence of delight or adoration in your life. Lewis says, invites us, start right where you are. What's right in front of you? What do you have to do? The delight doesn't grow in a vacuum, but it actually happens in the stuff of life. So as you look at your life, what's right in front of you to do an act of obedience as we do what we're called to do, like the two servants did, will generate a kind of delight in him. And as we do that in this period of time, it will grow so that we'll see and we'll know him, anticipate his return and be ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth that you've entrusted to us so much. Father, I pray for each one here, the challenges that we face of seeing what's in front of us or seeing if you've brought gain or, or seeing the value of what you've, you've placed into our lives. But I pray that you would give us eyes to see that we'd be able to encourage one another as a community that indeed you would grow this 
these resources so that people would know you, that others would be brought into delight in a relationship with you, be transformed by your grace. Jesus, we do anticipate that day you will return. We long for those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And I pray, Father, that that would drive us today to do what you've placed right in front of us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Isaac.